It would appear that the end of John chapter 20, which we looked at last week, would be the natural ending for the story of the Gospel of John. You'll recall that there, after Thomas's confession, right, John says there are many other things that Jesus did, which he did not record. But what he did record is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. But apparently, after he wrote that, John felt that the events of this chapter, chapter 21, were important enough to add as a sort of epilogue to the gospel. And to see why that is so, let's turn to the text in John 21, and we'll look at it under two headings. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Catching fish, feeding sheep. Catching fish and feeding sheep. So first, catching fish. So the disciples, there's seven of them. It's a little detailed list. Again, if you look at the list of the seven who are named, you can already get the feeling that this is a first-hand report of events. They're up north of Jerusalem. They're back in their home region of Galilee, back where they originally were three years ago when Jesus called them to leave the fishing business and to follow him. And Peter declares, I'm going fishing. This is not a recreational fishing trip. It's not a rec- this is how these men made their living. It's how they eat. And so you have this very interesting scenario. After two appearances from the risen Lord, we find the disciples back fishing. Maybe surprisingly, more than a few commentators seem inclined to criticize them on this account. But Jesus himself had promised to meet them in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, in Galilee. And until he shows up, one has to eat. It's true, it's true that earlier they had left their nets and followed Jesus. But we're in a sort of strange time here. Right Between the resurrection and the ascension, they're still somewhat disoriented. They've not fully grasped their future mission. So they take up what they know. Right? They take up their trade. And the fact that our Lord himself appears and indeed blesses this fishing expedition, I think, indicates his approval. So the story's familiar. They catch nothing all night. They're still at it in the morning. Jesus is on the shore. They don't recognize him. And he asks them, you know, tenderly, friends, do you have any fish? And they say, no. He instructs them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. Right? If they do, he says, they'll find some fish. They'll succeed, in other words, if they listen to the voice of the one who is risen, the sovereign over the sea, The one who, as the second person of the Trinity, lives the divine life of God and thus is all-knowing. The Lord of the wind and the waves. The Lord of the fishes in the deep blue sea. And we're told at the end of verse 6 that they obeyed the Lord. They were unable to haul in the, the, the net because of this large number of fish. Everyone knows the story, or I would say most of you know the story. You might notice this as well if you're a student of the Gospels. 
This story is very similar to one recorded in Luke chapter 5. It's clearly not the same event, but there's some, a number of details which are similar. In the Luke 5 story, again, Simon and his cohorts work all night. They catch nothing. Jesus then bids them to launch out into the deep. They get a great catch of fish. And Peter falls down there and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter knows these little episodes with Jesus in the fishing boat are about a lot more than fishing. So Jesus tells Peter then, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And at that point, they leave everything. They leave their business, and they follow Jesus. Our text here is drawing on that incident. It's, this is a parable, even as that was a parable of the disciples' original calling, this is a parable of the disciples' future, the church's future missionary activity. That's what's happening in the story. The whole passage is about Peter's restoration and the recommissioning of Peter as the leader of the disciples. Right? He was called, he followed Jesus in Luke chapter 5, here after the resurrection, after his denials. Peter's recommissioned as a disciple, he's called to follow anew. The key words in both stories are, follow me, which, to which I hope to return. So the great commission of the church this is John's logic here, I think. We looked at this last week in the text right before this, where Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, as the Father sent me, so I will send you. That's John's Great Commission story. And the Great Commission of the church will require the renewal of Peter and his companions as fishers of men. And that's what we see here in the first part of the text. In the second part of the text, we'll see that it also requires the renewal of Peter as shepherd. Fishing, shepherding, catching, feeding. So back to the fish story. Back to the fish story in the John text. Verse 9 tells us that they got, you know, as soon as they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it. You know, the last time we saw a charcoal fire in John's gospel... Peter was warming himself around it, just about to deny the Lord. And they saw some bread. Jesus doesn't appear to have enough fish for the meal. He, like, intentionally undercooks. And so he asks the disciples to bring some of the fish that they caught. Peter goes back, he drags the net ashore, and, get, and John gives us this very interesting detail he says in verse 11, there were 153 fish. Now, there's been all sorts of speculation about the significance of the number. I'll give you just one prominent example. It comes from the great Augustine. This is how ancients thought. It's maybe not that different from some people who are into numerology today might think. Augustine says 10 is the number of the law, since there are 10 commandments. Seven, seven is the number of the, the fullness of the Spirit, the, a gospel number. God has seven spirits before his throne. We heard that in the Revelation reading this morning. So the age of the gospel is the fulfillment of the law in the power of the Spirit. It's ten plus seven. 
That's 17. Then, then Augustine says, if you add the numbers up from 1 to 17, that's called the triangular of a number, I believe, right? The triangular number of 17 is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, blah, 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 plus 17. If you add those numbers up, you get 153. <laughs> Needless to say, um, it's highly speculative. To be fair, Augustine doesn't dogmatize about it. He just throws it out there and says, hey, here's a way to get 153. So I want to say that uh, you know, after much reflection, I think 153 fish means they caught 153 fish. In the Greek, 153 means 153. That's why it's translated that way. But it's not an insignificant number. Here's a threefold significance to the number. Here's three things it does mean. First, it means this. They caught a lot of fish. And if you keep Luke 5 in mind, it means the church is to catch men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That's first. Second, they caught so many fish, and yet the net was not broken. The Lord of the church provides the church everything she needs under the strain of her labor so that the church doesn't fail in her labor. Third, this is another one of those details that only an eyewitness would know. Right? A careful reader notices this and thinks, this has the ring of an eyewitness account. John was there. That's why he knows the number's 153. So Jesus says to them, come and have some breakfast. Isn't that great? Jesus cooks for these guys. And you can bet this is not the first time he's cooked breakfast for them. It creates a bond. It creates a bond. I remember when I first came here, Sabi told me about how his pastor in Brooklyn used to cook him breakfast. It's a wonderful thing. And it created a bond between Sabi and this pastor. By the third or fourth time I heard this story, though, I, I told Sabi, look, I don't want to disappoint you, but I'm not cooking you breakfast. You don't want, you do not want to eat my cooking. We'll have to have coffee. But Jesus cooks breakfast for his disciples, and it's part of the bond, right? It's, it's the core of the gospel is divine hospitality that leads to table fellowship. So they eat. But it's a little, it's a little bit of an otherworldly meal, right? Because no one even dares to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They just eat in like awestruck silence. Jesus is somewhat strange now, even as he eats breakfast with them. So the commissioning of the disciples will require their renewal in eating and drinking with Jesus. So that's catching fish. Let's look at the second thing here, feeding sheep. And here, the Lord's tenderness is really on display. Remember, Peter is surely stinging from his denials. 
especially, remember, after all the bombast about how he would never forsake Jesus and how he would be willing even to die for him. All the chest-thumping triumphalism of Peter. His place among the 12 now is tenuous, and the future mission of the church demands that our Lord address Peter personally. So in verse 15, after the breakfast, this scene reminds me of those scenes where, you know, you get in trouble as a kid and your mother says your father's going to deal with this when he gets home. Your father gets home and you have dinner with your father and you're hoping that maybe you can be excused from the table and your dad either forgot or it won't happen right now. So breakfast is over. Simon knows something's going to happen. And then Jesus says, Simon. You're like, okay, this is going to happen now. Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. He had to be tensely waiting for this. He knew there would be a reckoning. He just didn't know when it would come. And also catch this. There's a certain very sober solemnity in Jesus using his full name, Simon, son of John, which Jesus does in all three questions. Simon, son of John, Simon, son of John, Simon, son of John. The Aramaic for this is Simon bar Jonah, which Matthew uses. Simon, son of John. Not Simon Peter. Or Peter, that's the name Jesus gave when he pronounced a blessing on him for identifying Jesus as the Christ. Not the name which means rock. He's been anything but a rock. Right, so here you get this much cooler, pre-blessing name, Simon, son of John. It's sort of like the way you might use a child's first and middle name if you want to address them about something serious. Right, you might have grown up in a house like that. I know I did. Cheryl was just telling me about how our grandchildren, Judah and Leah, love it when Cheryl addresses Justin as Justin Michael. <laughs> they love that because that means their dad is going to receive a little instruction from his mom. When the middle name gets used, they know something serious is going on. And that's the tone of Three times repeated, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? I mean, after all, Peter had essentially boasted that he did love Jesus more than all the rest. This is a, a bit of a sneaky question. It seems like a sort of obvious question about devotion. But the way Jesus words it puts Simon in a bind. If he says no, that's not good. He's supposed to be the leader of the apostles. If he says yes, he's boasting again. Jesus does not ask him, do you love me? He asks him, do you love me more than these? These others. It's a test. And Peter's answer, you know, will you boast in your superiority? That's what the question means. And Peter's answer is very instructive. And it's humble. He does not compare his love with the others or with anything. He simply and emphatically says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
It's a beautiful answer because now gone is all that bombast and all the comparisons about his devotions with other people's devotion. He has no deeds at this point to point to. He's in a position, he's got no concrete acts of love. He simply affirms what's in his heart. And he appeals to Jesus' sovereign knowledge of his heart as Lord. You know that I love you. And so Jesus replies, feed my lambs. Much ink has been spilled about the fact that Jesus uses one word for love. Peter replies with another word. But the various words for love here are used interchangeably by John. There's no subtle difference or significance. It's just stylistic variation. The reason for the threefold questioning is obvious. Peter has denied Jesus three times. And here he's asked to affirm his love for him three times. This is the restoration of Peter's apostleship. Peter is charged three times to feed Christ's flock. He's reinstated as a shepherd. You know what I love about this story? Jesus does it without ever explicitly mentioning the denials. There's no berating of Peter here. Isn't that wonderful? There's no berating. Even after such a hideous crime, there's no, what were you thinking? The world is full of fathers like that. What were you thinking? How could you? Jesus does not humiliate his children. There's even some indication that he may have pulled Peter aside for some of this, because a little later in the text, he's walking with Peter on the beach. They're not sitting around having breakfast anymore. And then they turn around, and they see John following them. I think he told him in public, but then he took him aside for a walk. So it's true, Jesus corrects his children, sometimes sharply, but he does not humiliate them. He's a good shepherd. And with the third question, Peter's grieved. Not angry, not irritated. He's brokenhearted that the Lord would ask him again. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, for the third time, Jesus says, feed my sheep. The repetition is the mother of learning. Notice they are always Jesus' sheep. He owns them. They do not belong to Peter. They do not belong to the leaders of the church. They don't even belong to the other sheep. It's Jesus' flock purchased with Jesus' blood, and he does not delegate his shepherding ministry. He invites others to participate with him in his living shepherding ministry. Which is why, then, it's, it's why personal love for Jesus is indispensable. It's the crucial thing in caring for the flock. That's it. Jesus does not ask Peter about any other qualifications. Here's the qualification for Peter. Do you love me? If yes, then feed. If you love someone... You do not harm or damage their property. And the sheep are Jesus' possession. And so we get this sober prophecy after this of how Peter will die, 
how he will glorify God in his death. And we have it on pretty good tradition that Peter was crucified under Nero in Rome somewhere in the mid-60s or so. And the impression of this event, the impact of it on Peter was clearly lasting. In his first epistle, which Peter writes a couple decades later than this, he charges the elders of the church, the shepherds, and he says he does so as a witness of Christ's sufferings and as one who will share in the glory that is to be revealed. He tells them, be shepherds of the flock under your care. Watch over them. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory which will not fade away. He knows a little bit about what makes a good shepherd. So Jesus ends in this text. The last two words of the text are very important. He hearkens back to that great catch of fish in Luke 5. He commands Peter now, just as he commanded him then, follow me. You know, we hear that a lot in the Gospels, but it can kind of slip past us, like, what does that mean, follow me? Right? Does it just mean believe in Jesus? Try and do... What's the, this text is about what the shape of that following looks like. So I want to close with three exhortations that maybe unpack that shape a little bit. I'm going to call them vision, fishing, feeding. Vision, fishing, feeding. First, our vision. The session has been crafting a vision statement, which we are using for strategic planning purposes, and which we hope to roll out to the whole church in the fall, when, Lord willing, among other things, I'll do some preaching on it. But here's a preview. It can be summarized in three words. Glorify, nurture, proclaim. Glorify, nurture, and proclaim. And two of those words are highlighted for us in this text right here. Fishing for men, catching fish, that's proclaiming. Proclaiming the gospel. Feeding, tending the lambs of Jesus, that's nurture, nurturing the saints. This text is two-thirds of our vision statement. So Peter and his companions will fish for souls, and then they will feed those souls as Christ's lambs. And so the follow-me of this text addresses each of us, and it means this. Follow as a proclaimer of the gospel, and follow as one who nurtures the flock. So there's a little diagnostic tool, a little test for our souls. Right? If we're not involved in these two things, then we are not following. We're doing something else, but we're not following. So it is our vision because it is the Lord's calling to be about both things robustly. Fishing, feeding, proclaiming, nurturing. That's the vision. Lord willing, there'll be more about this later in the year. The second exhortation then is fishing. As I mentioned last week, everyone here is on the evangelism team. Jesus commands us to fish, to pray, to bear witness, to reach out, to proclaim, to invite. And we can't delegate this. The Great Commission is for the whole church, the royal priesthood. 
But there's a couple things that this text helps us to see clearly. Notice this as you go forth. It was the word of the sovereign risen one without whom we could do nothing. It was his word, this word. Uh, Put your nets on the right side of the boat. That's the word which secured the great harvest of the fish. I mean, Peter is going fishing. I never liked to go fishing. My father would always ask me if you want to go fishing. Would you you like to go fishing with me? And I said, not really. It seems to me that you could get the fish right at the supermarket. But Peter's going fishing. And in this case, we have to go with him. We We have to go with him. Get your gear and go with him. You have to get wet. You must be in the boat. And, and, and it is liberating to know this. All fruitfulness and faithfulness depends on the word of the sovereign one. But you still have to be in the boat. Thirdly, feeding, nurturing the flock. Yes, pastors and elders do this. But this is for all. The ministry is given. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, right? Pastors preach, elders teach and lead to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You are a royal priest. If you're endowed with the Spirit of Christ, you partake of his prophetic, kingly, and priestly ministries. You are invested for ministry. So as with proclaiming and fishing here, in nurturing and supporting one another, all depends on the good shepherd who doesn't lose, who protects and guards all of his sheep. I mean, this is such an obvious point, right? It's why the New Testament repeatedly calls on all Christians, charges all Christians to love and to encourage and to exhort and to teach and to admonish and to strengthen, to forgive, to care for, to support one another. This is the very lifeblood of the body of Christ. So just like you have to be in the boat, you have to be in the pen. You have to smell like the sheep. Too many Christians do not smell like the sheep. Peter is going shepherding. You need to be going with him. So catching fish, feeding sheep, it's everyone's business. Everyone's business. So we ask ourselves, do I proclaim the gospel? Am I nourishing and nurturing the flock, the sheep, my brothers and sisters? If not, I want to end with a word of encouragement for you. And here's the word of encouragement. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't do this, or I need to do better at it. Well, here's what we can see in this text. Let Peter's restoration be a new beginning for you. What does Peter's restoration and recommissioning mean if it doesn't mean this? Past denials do not determine future performance. Past failures do not determine future fruitfulness. So here then, to follow Jesus is to follow Peter's example. You ever hear that saying that you'll do something by hook or by crook? Meaning you'll do it whatever way necessary to get the job done? Well, it's been said based on this text, that Peter fulfilled his calling by hook and crook. Not by hook or crook, hook and crook, meaning by the fisherman's hook and by the pastor or the shepherd's crook. By hook 
and by crook then, right? by catching and feeding, by proclaiming and nurturing, follow Jesus. Amen. Amen.